0: Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And Glenn, Glenn, again, Glenn, we're fighting to get these out <laughs> as fast as possible. Uh, but, uh, you know, schedules and all that, but we've we've talked about that before.
1: Right, but we're going to surprise our audience by just issuing a whole bunch now. Just bam, bam, there we bam, go. in your face. We're going to get in it.
0: Yeah. So a couple things real quick. First off, new patrons. Thank you guys so much for joining the rest of the team and helping to, uh, you know, contribute, uh, ex- especially this time of year is when, uh, all the, uh, the checks are due for hosting the website and the, and the podcast, uh, stuff, uh, very much appreciated. So thank you. Thanks to Whitney, to Jacqueline, Courtney, and Tammy. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for your contribution at patreoncom slash Loop
1: podcast thanks guys
0: and uh so glenn you know, every year try to do something different to kind of start off the episode and uh it's it's oh my. uh it is a new year it is a new year so uh, instead of you know doing like a new thing kind of by popular demand I decided uh-huh. to go back
1: to the dad jokes so glenn uh <laughs> we We did get a ton of requests for more jokes. <laughs> i mean I, like a shocking amount of requests <laughs> uh I,
0: I think some people are just um they like the torture right uh they they like the groan that that uh, these induce uh so with groan in mind uh what do you call a fish wearing a bow tie
1: all right you got me
0: sophisticated <laughs>
1: That's
0: pretty good. No, it's bad,
1: Glenn. It's it's very, <laughs> it's very very bad. But, you know, the thing is, I used to groan more. Now I kind of laugh at them. You I mean, laugh yeah. at them. I, I yeah. Go. I I think I've adjusted to your sense of humor. <laughs> for all those who have requested
0: the return of the dad jokes, I, I, you know, thank you for requesting them and and glad to bring them back. For those of you who who are um, rolling their eyes and are dreading the return of the dad jokes. You can blame the other half of the uh, of the it's audience. True.
1: Hey, and I got one for you. Oh, okay. Here we go. Uh, if you know a girl with three feet, I'd like to meet her.
0: You mean like like yard and like meet there her? You meet, there, but you but three, but there, there you go. There you go. But that's slightly more than it's uh, the the math conversion in me wants to.
1: <laughs> I'd like to approximately meet her.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to meet her ellipses approximately. <laughs> I, I think that's the way I'd, I'd phrase. Anyway, anyway, we we uh, we should get going in here. Um, you just uploaded the the most re- recent episode from the uh, the IAI, and you know we're we're back from that uh, and the Idemia conference where I just saw Glenn a week or so ago. Back before the IAI episode, we recorded one about an article from uh, teal Drawer and. We had promised a follow-up episode to that, so this is that we're returning to that topic. So, with that, uh, we'd like to welcome back as a returning guest on the show, uh, Todd Weller. Todd, welcome back to the Double It Podcast.
2: Hey guys, thanks for having me. Around uh, uh, I think it's around Fourth of July or so. You guys did your your uh, your podcast on what we're going to talk about today, and uh, I I then looked out my window and I saw this spotlight. That that a double <laughs> double looped uh, latent print impression. I said, oh, I, I think Glenn and Ray need to talk to me. So here I am.
0: <laughs> there you go. No, so, uh, and uh, thank you so much for for coming back on the show. And and uh, throughout that entire episode, you know, Glenn kept saying, "Well, at least for fingerprints, we'll yeah, have to talk to someone else." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you yeah, absolutely, we had to to come back and talk firearms. Uh, but if in case someone hadn't listened to the previous episode where where we had you on i uh, want you to introduce yourselves for the audience
2: sure i'm a forensic scientist and have been practicing forensic science for gosh 21 years or so now and that includes working in various disciplines from drug chemistry crime scene work DNA analysis, but my primary focus for the second half of my career has been in uh, fireman tool mark examination. So I've worked most of my career at a uh, public agency for the Oakland Police Department in California. For the past five years or so, I've been in private practice with my own company, uh, Weller Forensics.
0: All right. When we last talked and had you on, uh, what were some of the topics we covered? Um, gosh,
2: it is a while ago. I think we talked about error rate studies a bit, and um, just kind of.
0: Firearms forensics and the Dobert hearing out of uh, on the East Coast, right? In, That's in right.
2: Yeah, we talked about the New York Dobert hearing. That's right. The I think New York versus Ross case. Got right. It.
1: Got. So, um, particularly Todd, the reason we wanted to have you back in this episode was, you know, Eric and I talked about this paper which sort of casts this view on fingerprints and firearm studies, uh, the error rate studies. And uh, we disagreed with a lot of the main tenets of the paper in this Drawer and Scourge paper, the original one. And then you guys actually formally responded to the journal with a letter and a, and a criticism and then Drawer and Skirch responded to you and your letter. So we kind of want to talk about that and sort of talk about what were some of the differences with the firearm studies. Do, do you have the same criticisms that we have? Uh, do they apply to some firearm studies, but not so much fingerprints? Um, as, as Eric said earlier, you know, throughout a lot of times I just kept saying, I, you know, but I don't know if that applies to the firearms or not. And I, I, because I just don't know those studies well enough. I don't know the design of them. I don't know who designed them. I don't know if some of the things that came up if they were, you know, critical thoughts of it. So we're hoping to have you on to kind of talk about your perspective as a response to, to that original article.
2: Yeah, sure. My overall responses would be very similar. You know, you guys kind of went line by line through their kind of four major critiques of the error rate studies. And, right. um, I was kind of nodding my head as you guys, you know, I listened to your podcast and I was agreeing with you throughout that, um, they make a lot, uh, I'm speaking, they as drawer and scourge make a lot of accusations about the error rate studies, but, um, don't seem to provide a lot of backup or support for those accusations. Um, and a lot of it, 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 just doesn't make sense to me, you know, so we can kind of go through maybe briefly through some of those um, about in their paper. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I just kind of shake my head because I, I think they just, there's a, I don't know if intentional or just a total lack of understanding about the nature of the evidence in these area studies.
1: Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't know Scourge personally, so I don't know, you know, his views or knowledge of forensic science and I've known Etail for a long time. And I know it's usually not a, Deliberate thing. So I guess, you know, if, if there's a way to educate the authors and try to, you know, make our position clear, I mean, what we could do is we could go through the, the four main items that Eric and I addressed before and just kind of see how yeah. they apply to, to firearms.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I, mean, I have the paper in front of me here. And the, the first flaw that they talk about is uh, avoiding difficult samples. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, if you kind of read in section four there, they, Expand to expand that and basically they talk about saying inconclusive evidence is challenging and there should be inconclusive samples here that push examiner's thresholds, right? right. And so everything shouldn't be straightforward, black and white, yes or no, there should be stuff
1: in the middle there. Right. The the more inconclusives you have, or the more even maybe what we would call no value, maybe you can't analyze those, those sort of threshold type cases, the more of those you have in the results suggest that the samples were difficult.
0: Well and it it what we had talked about before, Glenn, was uh the the efforts that in fingerprint studies, the, uh, the researchers went through to make sure that difficult studies were included. And then we specifically pointed to, Hey, look at this sample here. It's a clear example of a difficult, uh, test scenario, uh, to, to show that this was actually, I mean, absolutely included in all the studies. So I'm really curious of, you know, what steps in these firearm studies specifically or, or generally, uh, the, um, the researchers went through to make sure that they included difficult uh, samples. Uh, and, you know, where in the papers did they, you know, provide examples where it's, where it's very clear, yes, this is a difficult sample?
2: Sure. I'll, so I'll give you an example that there's a newer FBI error rate study. So this, this has been published as kind of a preprint so far. This was actually published almost a year ago now as a, a preprint, and it's going through the peer review process, but that hasn't prevented uh actually dr scourge has has critiqued this in some of his declarations in court so i think it's kind of fair game if if he's critiqued this study so in this study here's i will read directly from it the firearms and ammunition discussed above were specifically chosen to present examiners with a difficult task due to the hardness the steel cartridge case and bullet jackets may not significantly reproduce individual characteristics as opposed to softer materials such as brass. So, uh, and in the same study, they use consecutively manufactured firearms, which a number of the studies use. So these are firearms are made sequentially one after the other with the same shaping and cutting tools, thereby trying to present difficult samples. They're most likely to produce confounding tool marks, all same class characteristics. So you're using only individual characteristics for differentiation. And there's a number of other study designs, you know, you don't, don't actually have a firearm to examine or to collect additional test fires from many of these studied studies, especially of the PCAS preferred design, you only have one question sample. So you can't assess the reproducibility kind of one of the tenets of firearm and tool mark examination. So there's a number of study designs and sample choices here in these studies that presents what I think it's fair to characterize as difficult and more difficult than what you would expect in typical casework.
1: That, I mean, that, that sounds completely reasonable. And everything you said there is just, has, has gravity to me. I mean, the consecutively manufactured yeah. barrels, the, you know, only one sample from, I mean, all, all of that makes complete sense. I at and a and
0: the, the The type of, of casing with the harder material, I would say a rough correlation to fingerprints being uh, a processing technique that or, or surface maybe even that is uh, you know more light, more difficult to compare against and like the black box study in particular had different surface types that presented very you know challenging right. comparisons.
1: All right, well cross one off. Uh, what about well, And but
0: and just to to reiterate like you you reading off from the papers you know similar thing to what we did before this isn't like you're an expert so you can understand how difficult it was in the paper. They wrote down, like it was very clearly written in the paper, uh, the methods that they took and how they described it as we're doing this because it makes it harder.
2: Yeah. well, And and as you say, you know, they, they really aren't providing examples of actually avoiding these difficult situations. Right. I mean, you know, are there studies? I'm not aware of any that say, hey, this is an easy study. All examiners should get this right. I'm not, I'm not aware of, of those studies that are out there.
0: All right. So the, the second item, uh, excluding inconclusive decisions from error rate calculations. Uh, so if, for the fingerprints, we, we talked at length about the different approaches that can be taken to calculate uh, different error rates. And, and clearly showed how how the studies used the inconclusive decisions and did not exclude them from the calculations. It's very
1: straightforward
0: and, and clear how they were all included.
1: And one other thing I'd add, that for the fingerprint studies, for most of the studies, it's pretty inconsequential if you do keep them. It, sure. I mean, it really, yes, it increases, but n- not as much as the false negative rate increases. But for the most part, the false positive, at least for our studies, Really doesn't change that much.
2: So, you know, the the second flaw and third flaw that and Scourge lists kind of are combined in a sense. The second flaw of excluding inconclusive decisions. I almost wonder if this is almost a shot across the bow of PCAST, right? Isn't that kind of what PCAST does, or they just exclude inconclusives? But I agree with what you guys had to say in that. They're not excluded. First of all, all of the inconclusive results are reported, so we know the rate sure. of inconclusives, right? So they're not right. being hidden. The numbers are there. Dwarf and Scourge, no inconclusives happen in these air rate studies because it's in the published data. So th- the numbers are there to to do what you will with them. I always like to inc- talk about uh, sensitivity, especially because. Sure. If yep. inconclusives are a problem, if they're being abused, well, that's where it's going to show up because it, there it makes sense to especially include inconclusives. PCAST talks about this. PCAST mentions that design or error error rate or a methodology that has a very low sensitivity should be viewed with suspicion. You know, most firearms um, error rate studies are well into the nineties. Uh, I think the lowest the, the paper I read from you that the sensitivity in that is about. 75%. But given the test materials and what they're using, I'm not surprised. It really didn't come as a surprise to me that you have a lower sensitivity there. So, mm-hmm. uh, And certainly 75% is not very low.
0: I'm not sure if that's directed at PCAST or not. That's a good point, though, of excluding them from the error calculations. So PCAST is essentially saying, take the, say, false positives divided by the conclusive decisions uh, in that column, Leaving out the inconclusives. Uh, Again, we've talked before about how I disagree with that, but I don't know. Maybe that's what what uh, Drawer and Scourge is are getting at here with that line that you know excluding them from the calculations, because all of the error rate studies you know would include those in the in the denominator. So I'm not quite sure what they're. I, I guess I'm also confused as to you know what exactly their point is there when the number three is making kind of the opposite, counting them as correct. I mean, how can you exclude the man count as correct?
1: Yeah. So the only thing I might be able to jump in here with is just my own conversations with Drawer and the things we talked about when he and I were working to prepare our article. The thing that I remember that he always struggled with is he, he, he didn't like the idea that inconclusives always in these calculations either get counted as not errors if you will or they could be counted as errors he i mean the the thing i just remember him sort of struggling with is that it seems like it should be on a case by case sometimes it is appropriate to call it inconclusive and sometimes it's not but we don't have a good system for doing it just maybe in the calculations it's unfair or inappropriate to always count it as one or the other which In fact, I remember saying, yeah, I don't entirely disagree with you. The problem is the only way to do that is through consensus, which we brought up in the Shampoo and Heidi Eldridge palm print paper, which is exactly the method they used. That is the only way to determine if an inconclusive is appropriate. But I I agree with you, Todd, Eric, that, that if that's the message, it's clearly lost in here and it seems kind of confused with some other issues that really doesn't come out very well if that is what is being said, which... You know, I'm I'm projecting a little bit from past conversations. Yeah, and I
2: don't. I mean, cons- I think consensus is interesting, but it's a totally different statistical concept than yes. just accuracy, right? Yes. Consensus yes. deals with reproducibility, not overall accuracy. You know, you can have perfect consensus but be perfectly wrong, <laughs> right? So, so you really need accuracy first, and then see what's your reproducibility and or your consensus
0: which is why in the palm black box they looked at it both ways and presented uh you know both calculations where if you're looking at just pure accuracy you can see those numbers and if you want to try to to be a little more subtle with some inconclusives are are good and are the most appropriate conclusion and anything else isn't or the other way around, some like I say, IDs uh, should be an ID, and inconclusive just isn't appropriate. Right. And you know, in there, you're 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 really answering a different type of question, and it's important to see both, to look at both, to answer those two different questions. Again, the problem is just reducing it to, down to a single question. Uh, so for for the the firearms uh, accuracy studies, is there. Again, it's hard because there is no references in this paper to specific studies for each of these points. But is there anything where you can kind of try to understand what they're talking about? Because we couldn't see it for for fingerprints.
2: No, um, like I said, you know the inconclusives are counted. You know, in the third flaw, they reference a couple of the firearms papers. You know, so the third flaw they're saying you are counting inconclusive decisions as correct decisions, and the reason why. They are saying that is when you put inconclusives in the denominator. I guess theoretically you're counting them as um, true negatives, but it's really just tabulating the total, total number of comparisons, right? Because because right. The, the the math the, the math is binary, right? It's either, it, this deals with diagnostic tests that are either positive or negative, but inconclusive is neutral, and so if you want to know how many total comparisons went into those false positives, then you have to put inclusives in the denominator, just like you put the false positives in the denominator as well. You're tabling the total number of comparisons.
0: Well, so essentially, what, maybe what they're saying then is because the errors are in the numerator uh, and then the denominator includes everything, so everything that's not the error is, is quote-unquote correct, but I, I think that falls apart because, you know, also included in these studies uh, is sensitivity and specificity, which is just the other way around, where you just include the correct answers in the numerator. And then, again, it's not treating everything else as, as an error. It's just saying these are the total number of samples in there. So by that logic, you would then treat all inconclusives as error when you calculate sensitivity and specificity. And again, that's just not the case.
2: Correct. Yeah. And and I've never seen a firearms error rate study when calculating sensitivity or specificity that puts inconclusives into the numerator, which would be counting them as correct. Right. So it just, you you put in my mind, you put the numbers where they answer the question that's being asked. And so I, I think the way the fingerprint studies, as well as the firearm studies have Overall, handled the, the the math is is reasonable um, and and answers the question that the statistic is is trying to trying to ask.
1: Yeah, the, in either case, it's the number of opportunities to make that decision. What, what, whatever that is, it's the number of opportunities, so it should be included in the total, in my view.
2: Yep, I agree. So, in in the in the third flaw, um, they reference a paper that counts inconclusives as correct. So. Just to be candid, the that paper does mention that inconclusives are not wrong, meaning not a false positive, and therefore they count it as correct. I think in hindsight, the, that author would not have used that language. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about one inconclusive decision, and if you take that out, the error rate is still the same. It's a, it's the same percentage. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, they're they're using. One example here that they're referencing, referencing number 32, I, I, to kind of prove a point. And I, I don't know if that's really quite fair because most of the other studies, especially the newer studies, are really doing, doing it the same way as all the fingerprint black box studies as well.
0: I was, I just, sorry, I'm just looking this up as I, I didn't follow it down to the bottom. That was from 2009. I mean, Glenn. We talked about it last time. I mean, you had mentioned some older, some of like the original, very first accuracy studies. I like the one that you and Casey had published, where you specifically say, "Don't read this. Don't reference this anymore." We've got, <laughs> we've done better since then.
1: I mean, if that's the quote that they're going to pull out, no. yeah. I mean, I, I get your your point, Todd. I mean. They're, they 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 found something in the literature to make their point, but it sounds like it's the one study and the one statement. Is it also just one trial, too? I mean, one single trial? There are a number of
2: examiners. I forget the totals. There's a study looking at chamber marks. I do remember in that study, the overall error rate was calculated to be around 1.6 or 1.7%. All of the errors, in this case, false positives, were reported by one examiner. Which were three false positives, so it's a relatively small study, but it's it's another study and it's another chance for the profession to fall on its face, right? You know, I mean, if if it was there were a lot of errors, it would detect that. But th- that's the very general broad brush summary of, of that study.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and again, it, uh, I'm looking at the quote here on page two, where it it, it doesn't necessarily say that they're treating the inconclusives as correct. They were just saying that they were totaling them with the correct responses and figured the error rate uh, into the error rate as such. So, I mean that but that's exactly what a, you know, false positive rate does. It it includes the inconclusives in the total number of samples that were observed. Understandable like you said, Todd, that the, the could, could have been phrased better to, you know, be more clear as to how the calculation was being performed, but I, I see what from what's written here, what's pulled out, that it's it's a problem with the language of explaining it, and not with the actual calculation. Unless I'm completely misreading the the, the I haven't read the rest of the study. Todd, is that did they do something wrong, or is that is that?
2: No, I, mean, I I don't think they did anything wrong. Like you said, it, it was not the best choice of words, but but the math is still the same. It's it's the total number of comparisons, um, and and that's why it went went into the, the denominator.
0: All right. So then, the fourth point: examiners resorting to more inconclusive decisions during these studies than they do in casework. Uh, again, we didn't find any references or data or you know demonstration that this had occurred during the fingerprint error rate studies. Uh, is there any suggestion along these lines for the firearms?
2: Well, I, I'd like to know what what their inference is or where how they know inconclusive rates in casework. I'd like to see that data. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> But what an incredibly complex thing to try to study, right? Because I think if you were to take a look at inconclusive rates, it would be it'd be complicated, right? I think it would really depend on the agency, kind of their mission task, the yep, type of yep. samples they're looking at. Uh, I think you see major demographic differences. Yeah, so I what a broad brush. And like you said, there's no referenced or or what's the inconclusive rate they're talking about. So they go on to cite a couple of firearms papers. The papers that look like they're citing here, a couple of them are from the FBI. These are even earlier studies. I think they're like 2003 and 2004. And these are internal FBI studies. And the FBI and firearms is known for not excluding unless they have differences of class well what are you going to have in most of these area studies most of the comparisons if not all are going to be same class so of course you're going to if you're testing fbi trained examiners and what are you going to have a lot of inconclusives when you have a lot of different source comparisons so again i don't know if these are the fairest Uh, studies to be citing at least in in some of these here where they talk about the 98.3 percent inconclusive rate well that was a study designed actually to test expectation bias of examiners so there's an expectation perhaps that if you're taking some sort of error rate study there'd be a number of matches but the test uh, the study actually there was only one True match, and all the others uh, from a number of comparisons were non-matches. So it's a real attempt to try to see can we force errors here by providing a lot of non-matches. And since it's internal to the FBI, it's all same class. Then most of the results were inconclusive. It's not a not a surprise given the study design and who's taking the the uh, test.
0: It'd be a, for you know the, I think the rough equivalent would be uh for a an agency like my old one where you required uh, cores or deltas to reach an exclusion and then doing an error rate study with uh, all samples having no cores no deltas yeah you're not going to get any <laughs> exclusions just, that's just the policy that that those examiners work under so uh yeah you know, that makes sense
1: you know what i never noticed about this paper by the way uh is in the last page that uh the work was partially funded by CSAFE.
0: Wait. Oh, sorry, Glenn. I, th- I thought you <laughs> had no, seen that.
1: I did not see that. And, and, and I find this very surprising. I, I do. I,
0: really? You find this surprising? Well, from our previous discussions about C-Safe?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of those, it seems like if anyone should know better, it should be them. What, why is that? Why should they know better? They have statisticians I respect on their staff and whose views I think are are quite insightful. So it surprises me that someone wanted to raise their hand and went, wait a sec. You're making some interesting points, but i read those studies and I don't remember any of those things in any of those studies.
0: For other complaints we've had about CSAFE in the past – uh i don't remember complaining that having the factual error complaint like we have
1: had in this study right yeah that's it well said eric you put your finger right on that's exactly it right
0: all right so before we get into the the response and then re-response uh you know from our previous episode glenn and i we we had a, a few questions that we you know asked a theoretical firearms examiner that wasn't in the room and a few other points here. So, first one is uh, dismissing clerical errors. Is there any uh, on the firearm side? I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about where that was incorrect because it, it wasn't dismissing it, but we they uh, exam- the research discussed both sides of including or not including the clerical errors. Is that a thing on the firearm side too?
2: I'm not aware of any reports of clerical errors or them being
0: dismissed. Another uh, accusation was that only studies with uh, low error rates were published, meaning that some with higher error rates weren't published. Uh, any missing studies in firearms? Oh,
2: we're supposed to publish everything? I didn't know that. Oh, okay, let me get on. No, I mean, of course I'm being sarcastic. Uh, no, I'm not aware of any hidden data or stuff hidden in file drawers.
0: Yeah, no. Again, okay, yeah, I, I just... I don't understand where where those points were coming from because it just seems so clear how they were handled, and this paper should refer to something when discussing those. All right, so let's move into the uh, into uh, the response. So, uh, Todd, why don't you start off with just kind of a, you know, some high points uh, of 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 uh, from your guys from the response that you wrote to
1: uh, to this article? Oh, and who's your your co author on it? Sure. So uh,
2: my co author is Dr. Max Morris. He's um, now a professor emeritus, so a retired professor from Iowa State. He uh, specifically worked in the Iowa Ames, Iowa Mm -hmm. State Ames agency portion of uh, Iowa State. And uh, he's done a lot of firearms toolmark research. So he's worked a lot on 3D algorithm type analysis. And he was also a co author on two. Firearms black box studies. So and one of which was the one that uh, PCast accepted, and then the other one is the FBI study that's that's in press right now. He's my co-author. I I sent him the Drawer and Scourge article and said, uh, Dr. Morris, I have some concerns here. What do you What do you think? And he also shared concerns. So we we put this uh, letter to the
1: editor together that we wrote. So in in the article, and and for the for listeners who maybe don't know how this sometimes works. If if they haven't published before, uh, when an article gets published, if you write a letter into the editor fairly quickly, uh, the editor is willing to publish that letter, uh, but they will usually give the authors of the original article a chance to respond to. So you guys had your letter published and on publication of that letter, Drawing and Scourge had a chance to respond. So... I guess what would be the the main things that you guys pull out because with any, I, I know I've experienced this. I'm sure you guys have this opportunity with any letter. There's all these little nitpicky things you want to get to, um, but you you keep the letters short and you try to keep it one page and focus on the big the big topics.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so your guys's podcast, and as we kind of went through already tonight, there's a lot of kind of factual stuff that I. Take a lot of issue with, but really, what Doctor Morris and I had more concern about was the proposed method of actually counting inconclusive as errors. I am kind of putting that in quotes because because that's the path forward, right? If right. If, if we move to this study design that Jordan Scourich, we we think this is doomed for failure and not a path forward for forensic science, so that's what we really wanted to take issue with
1: which I'm not aware of being used in other disciplines like other fields that do diagnostic testing regularly it's it's not i mean its it's an intra I mean it's this new proposed idea that they have, but I don't know that it is used elsewhere
2: well you you know what Dr. Morris mentioned and I think maybe this holds true is that he feels that this approach is much more of a psychology or social science approach mm. where you don't have ground truth. Mm. You can only rely on consensus to try to get to some sort of standard or truth. But what Dwarf Scourge are proposing is you essentially give up ground truth and move tor- towards consensus. And that that's where we take issue is why would you give up ground truth when, when you have it already?
0: Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's a very, it's a, It's an interesting way to phrase it. I hadn't thought about it in that way before that that's essentially what they're, what they're doing is, is as opposed to like the Palm black box study where they presented both approaches, you know, Hey, let's consider it, you know, under both, let's consider this both ways. And then uh, it can answer different questions. They're really proposing those. Let's only look at this one way, which then eliminates uh, any study of accuracy from a ground truth perspective.
2: Right. But there's a real obsession I don't know if that's the right word, but I feel like there's a real focus. Perhaps is the right better way of saying it. Of if if it's either right or it's wrong, right? So an error yes. rate is is one minus correct, and the there's nothing in between. And I don't think that's a actual reflection of science. So let me use a non-fingerprint, non-firearms example. I use a DNA genetic analyzer, and I'm sure everyone's a little cringy there when I say that, but When you have a genetic analyzer, you have to validate it, and when you validate it, you set analytical thresholds. Well, so you set a, what are you doing instead of analytical threshold? You're setting a level of which when you get a peak, anything above that peak, you have confidence that that signal is real. There might be signal below it, but you don't have confidence in that signal, and so therefore you're not going to use that signal for further interpretation. Kind of sounds familiar, at least in firearms, and I think probably sounds familiar in fingerprints. You might have some minutia, some detail there, but the quantity or or quality of that detail is not sufficient for you to make further decision with, right? And with so, confidence, right. Right. And Glenn or or Eric, your guys' thresholds may be slightly different. Well, you know what? In DNA, different gene- genetic analyzers have different analytical thresholds based on the training materials or the validation materials that were used to validate that instrument you may even have two genetic analyzers in the same laboratory that have different analytical thresholds because they are just slightly different instruments so just because one has a slightly different analytical threshold than the other doesn't mean one needs service or is broken or not wrong you know so so i I think that's a useful analogy here to think about this of of correctness and how one person might be inconclusive while another one uh can reach an identification and that's okay that sometimes happens and should be an expected result
0: Mm -hmm. right so it's not a question of is there a peak or isn't there a peak there's there's yes there's a peak it's above this threshold and if you go follow this analogy all the way out you might even set another threshold below which there's not a peak but then in between i don't know maybe right it's it's kind of in this this maybe zone of if there's a peak or not and for i mean extrapolating all the way out to a conclusion it it is a continuum and it's not a, a a binary system
1: you know this this raises an interesting issue. Uh, is firearms interested as a community or you know as a discipline? are they interested in opening that inconclusive box a little and looking at less than certain conclusions or you know the kinds of conclusions that uh, fingerprints is talking about and the kinds of conclusions uh, question documents is used for years?
2: I think there is interest, the relatively agreed upon scale of conclusions is the AFTI range of conclusions, which has three inconclusives. Hmm. So there's an inconclusive A, which says same, you have the same class characteristics, some agreement of individual marks, but not enough for identification. And then there's B, which is neutral and C, which is disagreement of individual characteristics, but not enough disagreement for a exclusion or for an elimination. So that always kind of exists. I think because they all fall under the umbrella of inconclusive that has created some con- confusion. I think that's also done for conservative purposes, but there's been a lot of this discussion within the standards community about having a, a broader scale and, and where that will fall out. I'm not quite certain yet, but certainly that discussion is ongoing.
0: It uh, sounds really familiar, Glenn. No, I- <laughs> Fingerprints went through the same thing. So it was, um, uh, our, Three versions of inconclusive didn't never got officially codified because it was a pending document when SWIGFAST shut down, but to do the same thing and you know the kind of was decided to move past that to the the five separate where inconclusive is only the middle one I, I keep hearing the same stories you know in <laughs> in different disciplines and and the the same discussions seem to happen you know on the same themes I guess and that's interesting to hear
2: and there are some firearm sections. Not in the United States that I'm, that I'm aware of, but for example the Netherlands um, Sweden New Zealand are a couple examples that are uh, very much likelihood ratio based so yeah. they 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 are much more in the document examiner type conclusions you know where they they and they the NSV scale that that type of of situation so there are there are firearms labs that have gone that route
0: interesting those those crazy Dutch again <laughs> Glenn and I haven't talked about the Dutch in regards to fingerprints for a long time. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of the overall uh, – you kind of mentioned the overall thrust and purpose for your response, uh, you're making sure that, that that these accuracy rates using actual ground truth data uh, isn't lost in, in this approach that they're suggesting.
2: Right, and, and so what Joran should proposed is two methods of, of judging whether or not an inconclusive is right – you know, so the first is to have some sort of panel of experts to prejudge all of the evidence, and the second method is to just use consensus of results, and then see where the consensus falls. So let's just think practically about these two. So, <laughs> so for example, let's talk about the panel of experts. Firearms is a little, maybe a little bit different than fingerprints, but let me give you an example. The the last air rate study that just talked about, this new FBI air rate study, they had a 56,000 samples that they test fired when you add up all the cartridge cases and bullets. I'm not sure what panel experts is going to be able to go through those 56,000 different samples, bullets and cartridge cases, and then meaningfully prejudge those comparisons. So that, I think from a practical perspective, just doesn't make much sense. When you think about the consensus basis, where where do you set your threshold for when something's right or wrong? Is it 50.1% and anyone below that is not right? What if your consensus is wrong with regards to the ground truth? Um, you know, so you kind of start thinking about this, and I think it's just really fraught with error. And it's it's kind of circular. You're using test takers to grade their own test. And so, but what if library test takers are not particularly good and there's a few examiners who get it right with regards to the ground truth. So a lot of examiners are inclusive, but there are some examiners who identify a di- particularly difficult sample. Well, I think of it as interest to know, try to figure out why, what are those examiners doing where they get it right? And maybe as a community, we can get better and learn from those examples. And just likewise, if there's errors, learn from those errors on why they occurred.
0: I think yeah, I think we we discussed you know here in this last episode, but also back with uh, the Palm Blackbox study, how this is can be problematic when using like you're saying the same test takers or from that same community to to determine what's right or wrong, and then someone who's factually right being labeled as wrong, or where it's right on the border. You said like fifty point one percent, you know, then by definition you're labeling the other forty nine point nine percent as just wrong as making an error. When the real situation is more likely that it's a borderline comparison, where you would expect a split decision, essentially, and in my view, it's better to describe, "Hey, there's a split decision here," and make that make sure that's clear. Hey, that that's the situation that's going on here, rather than say, "Oh, yeah, half the people just get it wrong."
2: Yep, I I agree, and, and then it's of interest to try to study those samples more right and become better as a profession to understand are those either way those appropriate calls and i think yes we're going to see some of those samples where you get some not full consensus but most of the time in my experience in firearms you do get a, a good consensus
1: so todd in their response to you guys they, I mean, there's really two things. I mean, they they basically say, you know, your your first issue about whether you know this is regarded as correct or an error. In, in other words, they're debating the language and the the terminology that's being used. It's I don't find that their description is entirely wrong. What I find is that it's just missing some of the I guess the standard forensic language. I mean, it, it sounds like two people who aren't forensic scientists who are trying to talk about the state of things versus ground truth versus the examiner's interpretation of that, the result of the test. I mean, I would classify those and use those terms. Unfortunately, they don't use those terms. So it kind of bounces back and forth between correct answer versus error versus reflection of the state. Uh, But I don't see that there's any real ground in that. Do you agree or disagree that they – the first couple of paragraphs really don't dispute or say anything meaningful.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like they're almost kind of just repeating
1: uh, a summary of their paper. <laughs> right, and without further clarification. I mean, there, nothing further gets clarified. The Where I think it's a little interesting is when it comes back around to what we just talked about, where the – why we think our consensus approach – may, may work or, or, or not. I mean, that's really where they kind of dig in the most and say that, no, we think that this is an acceptable approach.
2: Right. I, I also feel like they kind of just double down. (laughs) They just kind of repeat, repeat. And at, at this point, um, they're just talking, we're just talking past each other. Right. You know, we made our point and they've just reiterated their point.
1: They say the phrase, one cannot have it both ways. You can't have effectively an identification and an inconclusive. That's the phrase that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit because, you know, like you said earlier, maybe you can though. Maybe it is acceptable to have some examiners say ID and some say inconclusive because of, as you talked about, effectively the sensitivity of the instrument.
2: What they are saying is either the less assertive examiner should be punished or the examiner who doesn't conform with consensus but is still factually correct is wrong and while their argument sounds nice if one person's inclusive another one says same source well one of them has to be wrong i'm not sure that really conforms with right you know forensic science or just general science you know some sometimes you're going to have different sensitivity issues and what what laboratories should be aware of do you have an examiner or an instrument that's lost its sensitivity certainly if you're wait for using inconclusive too much or if you're abusing it that can happen theoretically it can you know and examiners and quality control and supervisors need to be aware of that that it, it can't just be a safe zone where it's not wrong but that is more in the interest of justice you're not doing your clients justice by always calling everything inconclusive right so i, right. I think that's the real issue
1: yeah, I think the thing that I probably triggers the most interesting response in my head is, well, it, it kind of depends. It sort of depends on what sort of inconclusive we're talking about. If I translate things to likelihood ratios, right, and let's say inconclusive is a likelihood ratio of one as it is supposed to be. But let's say an identification is – you know, um, on a log scale, I would just, let's say a nine. So if the, if, if the firearms examiner is going to identify it and and he's at a nine, whereas the other one is inconclusive at a one, then I do see there's a, there's a quite a bit of disparity between these two examiners. But if the firearms examiner who's identifying is at a nine and the one that is inconclusive is technically like at an eight or a seven, well, then I don't see that as big of an issue that that magnitude divide is that separation sort of makes sense. It kind of the, the, the separation really just is right around the threshold of the decision. So, again, I come back to the point drawer and I talked about years ago is it really depends. And without a way of measuring the strength of the evidence, the weight of the evidence, the likelihood ratio, we don't really know if an inconclusive is way off bounds or if it is, you know, just slightly marginally lower than the other person and may not necessarily quote unquote be wrong
2: yeah i, I think that's true glenn and i think back to your guys's paper you guys had a figure in there which kind of shows a, a timeline and as examiners comparing features their kind of decision as it goes up and down and at some point they cross a threshold right
1: that was drawers contribution by the way a drawer attributed that and called it a cognitive model
2: I, I think it's a nice model. <laughs> I, I yeah. like that. And I've I've used that and I put the after range of conclusions right next to it <laughs> to show ID inclusive A when you're right. really close to that threshold, B, C when you're close to that bottom threshold, and uh you know, elimination or exclusion. And uh it's it's a good model. I think it's a useful diagram. And like you said, if you're really close to those thresholds determining right. who's right or wrong is nearly an
1: impossible task, as, yeah. I think,
2: as, as I think you guys say in that paper.
1: Just because someone says inconclusive versus ID, that doesn't mean that there is that big of a difference between the two. It depends on the magnitude. The, the way we use inconclusive is so vague and broad, we're not necessarily being precise with where we are in the conclusion scale, where we are with the weight of the evidence, if you will, or certainty or whatever colloquialism we want to use. You know, a one and a nine is a big gap. That might be an error. Someone maybe made an error. An eight and a nine, that might be within an acceptable range of difference, even if they are different categorical decisions.
2: Right. Yeah, I I, I think that it's nuanced, and I I agree with that. But I don't think that's what Dror and Scourge are arguing here. They are not. Right.
1: They're looking at different categories.
2: They literally say it's irrelevant whether a determination is factually correct, Right. So, like I said, they're giving up ground truth. They're saying factual correctness is irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> and and I what? What do you mean it's irrelevant?
0: Well, I, I think their their binary nature you can see on the last page where they uh, they you know clearly state that there are three possible ways to count inconclusive responses: count them all as correct, count them all as incorrect, or don't count them at all. And well, no, there. That's that's those are not the sum total of options when considering inconclusive responses.
1: I think maybe we did discuss that in our episode. The yeah, you guys for did. False rates and positive predictive values.
0: Right, right. You could, that. I mean, that's that's measuring a different a different statistic. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't rely on inconclusive at all, right? So there's, that's another option. Yeah. Uh, but even you know, including them in the. Um, in the denominator for an error rate calculation, does not is not the same as counting them as correct and including them in the denominator as a um, for sensitivity or specificity calculations is not counting them as incorrect. Right. It's counting them as inconclusives. Uh, as as a test sample where an opportunity to be to be incorrect was 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 there, or for sensitivity and specificity, the opportunity to be correct uh, and match ground truth was also there. So that's that line right there really illustrates their lack of understanding or in a refusal to understand the the full picture that the accuracy rate studies are trying to uh, to get across.
2: It's kind of an attempt to come up with one error rate, right? Yeah. So what is the error rate and just have one statistic for how often Latent print examiners or firearm examiners are wrong, and that's that's what the attempt is. And in declarations, at least by uh, Dr. Scourge, I've essentially seen him try to do that, where he lumps inconclusives in with the factually wrong answers and say, "Look, in this error rate study, the errors is." If, as high as thirty percent. Okay, there we go. <laughs> he leans on this article that that he's written in most recent declarations that I've seen him written.
1: Whenever I read an article like this, I'm like, what what's the motivation behind this? What's what's the issue? I mean, I know again, Drawer always had this interest because you know we we talked about it for years, but I wondered if there wasn't some other motive or thought behind it. And I don't know, Scourge, but I think you just put the finger on what I was going to ask. And now it reminds me of when Haber wrote the series of articles and dismissed every single fingerprint error rate study that was done, said everyone was poorly designed. Everyone was crap. Everyone is useless. It tells us nothing. These are all terrible studies. And then used that paper when he went to court in his declarations doing the same thing, including no values and inconclusives as part of the total errors that occurred. It was the exact same thing I had seen. Is that what you're saying is this is now ha- or is happening in firearms?
2: Yeah, it's, it's definitely happening in firearms. We're seeing, seeing a lot of these challenges um, that either it's Mr. Scourge or I'm sorry, Dr. Scourge are other individuals. There's a uh, Mr. Fagman. He's a law professor oh. out of, out of California yeah. And he's kind of parroting this stuff as well. Uh, so I've seen declarations from his him. Um, so th- and there's a, there's a few others that are basically saying, look, there's this inconclusive rate, and look, the real error rate is you know con- is really high. It's as bad as thirty percent, one in three. Judge, it's so bad, throw it out.
0: So so essentially, I mean, I, I know you listened to our previous episode where I kind of described the uh, they've got these nine, this grid of three by three grids of nine possible scenarios where there's only three then correct answers and six errors, all in their eyes, equal errors. And it seems to me that they would, that they're then using that to artificially inflate the rate of error, say something like 30%, and then flip it back to saying or suggesting that that 30% applies to the number of false IDs and making that suggestion as to why it shouldn't be admissible in court. I've
2: seen that argument that these are all fi- false IDs. It's it's more more recently, it's just these are error of some kind. They're, they're an error. We're not accounting for them. And I've also read, well, look, this Drawer and Scourge article, this is the way error rate studies should be designed. None of them have been designed this way. And since they're not of the correct design, all the error rate studies are bogus. And so until they have error rate studies of this design – the the error error rates of past cannot be upon
0: it's just so frustrating like when bringing up things like you know the the inconclusive decisions that are made and you know classifying them as errors, et cetera et cetera, when you're in court with an ID right so how often or, or the potential error of an examiner that says inconclusive i mean how is that relevant to this case where I'm in here with an ID? Right, so if we look at just the IDs, how often, uh, when an examiner says an ID, did they get it wrong? Virtually never, and I know it's the same thing for firearms. You know that's the relevant question, but all this other, all these other categories are, are, are thrown around and included. You know, you got to count the no values as errors. It's like,
1: well, I mean, at least in in the case I had, and I'm sure I. Yeah, you're right, Eric. Um, if you're there with an ID, but if if Todd or I are presenting, well, here are the error rates from these studies, and they're very low, the defense's view is, no, no, those error rates for IDs are actually much higher. So he's here with an ID. It's not less than 1%. It's closer to 30%. Right, right, right. They're, they're
0: artificially inflating it and then backflipping it onto just this one conclusion.
1: Yeah, Definitely. Well, that's that's interesting. And I guess my next question is, has it been effective yet in firearms? It has not been effective in fingerprints, but has it been effective in firearms?
2: It's gotten some traction in some courts. None – there have been no cases that I'm aware of where examiners uh, – that firearms and tool mark examinations has been outright thrown out of court. But there have been some cases where examiners – Conclusions have been limited almost to the point where examiners can only speak mm-hmm. to class characteristics and and not speak to any further strength of evidence. So essentially, turning examiners' conclusions into inconclusives, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. right? Because that's what, by firearms, that's what inclusive is, agreement of class, but the individual marks or the, the random marks that are there, there's there's not enough to do with. You can't make any further determination. This
1: barrel can't be excluded. Exactly.
2: Or any other barrel with the same class characteristics, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, so some judges have, I would say, been confused by these arguments. And so, yeah, it's 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 been a struggle.
1: Are there any studies in the field of firearms comparing laypeople's ability to either – recognize diagnostically relevant characteristics or make comparisons or reach conclusions with, you know, minimal training compared to experts. You know, we've got a few of those and they're, they're actually pretty helpful studies. I'm not aware of those.
2: It's hard to get lay people in front of a comparison microscope, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, I suppose.
2: That, that I'm not as aware of. I did an error rate study where we include trainees, Mm-hmm. And their proportion of errors was higher, so there at least is that data contained mm-hmm. within um, the, our area study. That's the Chapnik study, where we looked use virtual comparison microscopy, uh, so using co- a computer screen to do to, to do the comparisons. And so we at least have that data point. But no, not I'm not aware of any lay people. It'd be very interesting to see. I suspect we would see. Uh, a lot of struggling, especially if you provide no training at
1: all. Say, here's two bullets, compare them. <laughs> yeah, or or limited. Like these are the characteristics we look for now. Here you go. Especially if you put consecutive non-matching yeah. items in there, which exactly the kinds of studies we've done and have seen, you know, ridiculously high error rates.
0: Yep. So something just occurred to me, uh, and it's about the um, the consensus. So, if I'm remembering correctly, most of these firearm studies involve sending the physical material to the examiners to compare. Correct. Correct, Mundo. So then, doesn't doesn't each examiner then get a different set of of test samples?
2: Yes. So this is another challenge with firearms: is that not all test fires are created equal, and so you you might be the unlucky one and get one that's not marked particularly well and your neighbor in the other laboratory got a decently marked well. So that's even harder to form consensus. Now, in the latest FBI black box study, they did actually receive samples back and send a second mailing out to do reproducibility. And then they sent a third mailing out and you got the same samples back without knowing you got the same samples back. So that study does have some repeatability and reproducibility data contained within it and our numbers are remarkably similar to the white box studies that you guys have like 90 percent repeatability and around like 85 percent reproducibility of identification decisions so you know something along those lines and i I thought it was pretty remarkable that our numbers i think are, are pretty close to each other
0: how do you have consensus then if everyone's looking at something different
2: yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd I was have, missing you'd something. Have, there. You'd have to ba- I mean if you wanted to do it with physical samples, you'd have to bail them one by one around and around.
0: The, the so their suggestion of of either have a uh, an expert panel review tens of thousands of pieces of evidence each individually to to come up with a panel consensus um, which obviously has has problems or well, the second one won't work at all because everyone's looking at something different. So they they've for, for firearms, they've there are two proposals of how to have this consensus, neither of them will work at all. Like you couldn't even try.
2: You, I think it would take you about 10 years to collect enough data to be statistically meaningful if you right to to mail samples from lab to lab and oh my gosh, yeah, it'd be really really hard.
0: Right. So they they've set a a Herculean task and which, which is impossible to to accomplish and so then they can just keep going back to saying see they haven't done this impossible thing.
2: Yeah I'm not even sure if they're aware of that and it, it's a good point but it, and here, here's another thought too about the consensus um, that this isn't my original thought this is by uh, in an article by the lead author is Alex Biederman from Switzerland. He brought up the point in the in the article, Responding to this one, kind of doing analysis of Joran Scourge, who he says this testing regime proposed by Joran Scourge would essentially direct examiners towards divining what other examiners are going to determine, not trying to divine what ground truth is, right? Because yeah. you're going to be judged by the consensus of everyone else, not by whether you got something factually correct or not. That's not a path forward
1: for forensic it's the science. It's a family feud problem. You're you're trying to guess what a hundred people surveyed might have said, as opposed to what the answer is. Correct. Correct. Well,
0: it's, it's 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 like the old it's like the old uh, family feud. I remember seeing an old old episode from like the seventies. I mean, usually it's an opinion, right? Or just name something, pick something from a, like a list of possible answers. But and it, from I think it was from the back in the seventies, the family feud question was. What is the southernmost U.S. state? Mm. There are four answers on the board. <laughs> <laughs> guess awful. what? Guess what? Answer number four was <laughs> Florida. No, that was number. I think that was number one.
1: Oh,
0: all right. That uh, was it. Was it was like Florida, then Texas, then California, and then Hawaii? Mm. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it was just like. Wow, that that's just fix to a lot, but that's exactly the same situation, right? You you're like, all right, I have to pick what the number one answer is going to be. What's everyone else going to say? I can't just say the correct answer, Hawaii, because I I then would be labeled as wrong. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's an analogy for you, Todd, in your next in your next court case that, that the judge will probably appreciate. <laughs> the Family Feud problem. I love it. That's great. That's crazy.
2: So, I, I thought it was a really good point brought up in this Biederman article yeah, that uh, the incentives set there if, for this testing regime are, uh, quote, not a way forward for forensic science. And I, I whole, wholeheartedly agree with that.
0: Right. And like I said last time, you know, all of these different calculations that you could make reveal something else about uh, examiner performance. Uh, but in my view, the positive predictive value should be as high as possible that's the one thing we got to get push up right Right. to sacrifice all else this is the one number that's got to be as high as possible and if you're then lumping everything together and then examiners are trying to increase that that collective number as a whole of these three correct answers and six uh, error uh, answers that's going to change examiner performance and we're going to start sacrificing that one critical number of the positive predictive value
1: Yeah, I I just don't think how we compute these things is broken. I think we have multiple tools at our disposal for computing statistics. As you have both said, to try to get at interesting or the relevant questions, I don't know that it's broken. If anything, I would change how we classify and characterize inconclusives. To me, that's the more interesting path forward as opposed to fixing how we compute the statistics. Yeah, I
2: Totally agree. You know, as as much as it pains me to say it, I think the PCAST approach here is not all that unreasonable. And what do they tell us to do? False positive should be low, and sensitivity should not be low. And you know, the, I think that's a reasonable approach that most lay people can understand. When when there's something different source, you don't want to call it as ID, okay? So that's your low false positive. And when something is same source. You should call it ID fairly often, and that's your sensitivity. And if both of those numbers look pretty good, then what's the problem?
0: I don't know. The the sensitivity question depends just so much on what samples you put into the study. If you start having a lower sensitivity, it may just be because you've chosen really difficult samples, that are difficult to make, you know, true positive decisions on.
2: Ah, but but Glenn, let me reference this article by Drawer and Scourge, which says on on uh, page four. Conversely, including too many difficult cases will artificially increase the error rate. So there you go; you can just lean on Joran and Scourge.
0: Uh And and part of that is from the first black box study, the fingerprint uh, black box study, uh, including all. Uh, compared samples, the sensitivity is at 45%. So, but again, there's, still a little, a little hot, there's a lot of hard comparisons in there. So- Sure, you
2: raise you raise a valid point. And um, what PCAST says is that sensitivity should not be very low. They don't define what very low is, but I would not call
0: 45% as very low. Again, I, and I don't think that number is really representative of actual casework uh, because, <laughs> but it is something that stands out. As, you know, something to investigate further. And it's, okay, well, why is it, you know, that low, especially compared to the specificity? And digging into, okay, they've got difficult samples in there, especially on the same source side, you know, starts to answer those questions and then can also, for the next study, you know, inform the next researchers on how to improve that next study uh, if that is seen as a limitation of this current one. All right well Todd thank you so much for joining us I appreciate uh, well, Glenn and I both we very much appreciate yeah. you joining us again and and really answering the the lingering questions we had on this uh, this uh, this paper and the follow-up the follow-up responses to it and uh, yeah, I hope again that you can join us here at some point soon as the fingerprint firearms fields keep crossing uh, or if you just have a particularly interesting case that comes up
2: Hey, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, you know, I saw the saw the bat signal, and uh, I'll get my my eyes <laughs> peeled peel to the sky. So, uh, no, I appreciate you having me on. It's 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 fun. I enjoy these conversations. It's kind of really fun to nerd out, dork out about uh, about our profession like this. And uh, sure. so
1: I look forward to it. Thanks. Yeah, we really appreciate it, and we we do need to get a bat signal, like maybe in the shape of the NRA like logo or something like that. Just. <laughs> I I like the the double barrel. The the first
2: time you guys had me on, you changed it to the double barrel podcast. So we'll have a double barrel shotgun in the sky. That will work.
1: All right. Sounds good. Uh, (laughs) As as our,
0: you know, we still have to grow our, our podcast network to, you know, double helix, double barrel. We'll, we'll come up with all sorts of different, uh, double terms for all the fields. All right. So with that, uh, you can email Glenn or I, Glenn at elite forensicservices.com or Eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, our website, double has links to all of the social networks and uh, merchandise and all the episodes and then patreon.com slash double loop podcast. If you want to get some of the original episodes from the first couple of years, uh, or just kick us a couple of bucks to uh, to help keep the lights on, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they might work for. And with that, thank you guys very much, and we'll talk to you guys next time.
1: Bye, bye, everybody. Have a great week.